As the kids are filing out, I'll invite you to find Mark chapter 13 in your Bibles. Mark chapter 13. So every Christmas, our church has this tradition of these Advent candles. Um, I didn't grow up in a tradition that had this, but I've enjoyed it here at Dolan's Grove. We light candles representing hope. Let's see if I get the sequence right. Hope, peace, joy, and then the pink one is for love. And then on Christmas Eve, we, we light this white one in the center representing Christ. So I want you to pretend that next year we announce we're adding an additional candle this year. And you get to decide what this additional candle will represent as we move into the Christmas season. What would you pick? Hope, peace, joy, love, and Christ are already taken So what would you submit to be the new Advent candle, the new theme? Having been in Mark chapter 13 for the last two weeks, since I didn't get to preach last week, I think I would suggest something about anticipation, perhaps. Christmas is all about anticipation. The first Advent, the first coming of Jesus Christ, was the culmination of hundreds and hundreds of years of anticipation as God's people read the prophecies of the coming Messiah and waited for him to be here. And the first advent, as we celebrate it, inevitably makes us think of the second advent when Jesus is going to return. Remember, Jesus didn't just do, he didn't complete everything during his life on earth when he was here. He lived the sinless life that we've all failed to live. He died on our behalf. He arose from the grave, the most astounding miracle of all the miracles, confirming everything that he said was true. And then he ascended to heaven, and he promised that he's coming back. He's going to return to complete the project that he started, the kingdom project. So we now are just like God's people awaiting the first advent. Now we're awaiting the second advent. So anticipation is a key part of our experience of Christmas if we're doing it right, if we're thinking about it in the right way. So today, in our determination to celebrate Jesus by listening to Jesus, we find ourselves in Mark chapter 13. It's an extended teaching about his return. I think you're going to find it fascinating. I certainly found the process of trying to be ready to preach it fascinating, Let's begin at verse 1, Mark chapter 13. And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, previously in the Gospel of Mark, you may remember that Jesus has been in the temple confronting the temple authorities over and over again, exposing their corruption and their hypocrisy. And now he's done with that, and he and his disciples are exiting the temple. And his disciples, these normal guys, average, blue-collar, everyday Joe sort of guys, were looking at the structure of the temple as they left. And they said, man, Jesus, look at this. I know you said that everything that's going on inside of there has been corrupted, and God's judgment is coming on that. But look at the structure itself. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it wonderful? Aren't these large stones wonderful? I don't know what you picture when you think of the ancient temple. You might be picturing sort of like a rustic chapel or something, but the temple was grand. It was massive. 
it, at this point, it had been under 50 years of renovation, construction, and expansion. And it was huge. The whole footprint of it was 35 acres. The full enclosure was the same as 12 football fields. On the retaining wall, one of the tallest points was 15 stories tall. And some of the stones that this disciple was marveling at were gigantic. If you're anything like me, way bigger than you would think these ancient builders would be able to deal with. Some of them could be 60 feet long, 15 feet tall, or 15 feet deep, millions of pounds, huge stones. And you're probably wondering, well, how did they put giant stones like that into place? Well, I did nerd out on a lot of research as to how in the world this could be possible, but I'm not going to go into all that right now. But they did have ways of doing this, and it was a spectacular structure. So it makes sense that these disciples would be looking around like that. It makes me think of uh, when my mom and my grandma Ruby and I visited my brother who was working in the Bank of America building downtown in Charlotte. And we're a bunch of country bumpkins from New Salem. And my brother laughed so hard because he could see from his office window the three of us trying to navigate around on the streets and looking up at the buildings like we had just never seen anything so awesome before. I think that's probably what these disciples looked like as they were walking out from their rural background, looking up. This is amazing. But listen to what Jesus says in response. Verse 2, and Jesus said to him, do you see all these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So you imagine me and my grandma and my mom and Charlotte and me saying, wow, Grandma Ruby, look at these awesome buildings. And her saying, it's going to be rubble. It's all coming down. Now, that would be a startling statement. I imagine the disciples were maybe a little startled. This was a really provocative thing for Jesus to say. In fact, if you read on, when they are, when he's on trial before he's killed, this is one of the key accusations. He said he's going to destroy the temple. Basically, he's a terrorist. He said he's going to destroy this grand temple that has the architectural significance of something like the Biltmore House. The cultural significance of something like Disneyland, people traveling from all over to get to it. The political significance for the Jewish people of something like the White House. And the religious significance of something like the Vatican for the Catholics. It's all rolled into one. This was an extremely significant structure. And Jesus just with the brush of his hand says, it's going to be rubble. Not one stone's going to be left on another. Don't be too impressed. Don't be too impressed by this structure. He goes on in verse 3. And as he sat down on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter and James and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Reasonable questions, I think, from the disciples. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So those are the, two, the twofold question. Jesus' answer takes up the whole rest of Mark chapter 13, and it is maybe the most difficult part of Mark to understand. There's a bit at the end that's going to be a challenge for us, but I think this is up there. Very difficult to understand. I have, I almost brought them out here for a visual for you guys. I have a stack of 
what's called commentaries. These are academic studies of books of the Bible that I use to help me. I don't just know a lot of the stuff that I share with you. I've gotten them from smarter people. And I consult these. There are many of them are very thick, very detailed. I consult all those. I have two thinner ones that are more um, popular level, not academic. And then I have a, a group of preachers whose sermons are online that I consult to see if I'm on the right track of things so that I can preach accurately. And I think I can honestly say, I don't think this is exaggerating, literally every one of those had a slightly different interpretation of what comes next in Mark chapter 13. So we need to approach this humbly. Now why is it so difficult? Before we get into it, I think the challenge that we face when we try to understand what's next is that the disciples seem to be asking about the temple. When is this great structure going to be brought down? What are the signs that this all is going to happen? Jesus' answer seems to be talking about the temple, but also the end, when he's going to return. It's really difficult in what follows to tell what he's referring to with some of his statements. Now keep in mind the disciples very likely thought that the destruction of the temple and Jesus establishing his earthly reign were the exact same event. I mean, to them, that must have made sense. They didn't yet understand that he was going to be killed, raised from the dead, and ascend into heaven for thousands of years while his kingdom was built up in the hearts of his followers around the world. Remember when he first came on the scene in the beginning of Mark? You remember what his first sermon was? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So basically, the king is here. It's time. Turn from your sins and come and follow me. And then you remember when he entered Jerusalem how everybody reacted. They went crazy and they laid down palm branches. We call it the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday. They laid down palm branches. Do you remember why they were going crazy and what they thought was happening? They were saying, the king is here. The king has come. Finally, we, God's people, Israel's not going to be under Roman rule any longer. The king is here. He's going to establish God's rule and everything's going to be put back into order. And no doubt the disciples were still expecting this as well. So, as they exit the temple when Jesus has just been denouncing it at every turn, and then he says it's all going to be destroyed, they must have looked at each other and said, okay, this, this is it. It's time. He's about to do it. He's going to destroy this old regime. He's going to destroy the old way, and he's going to set up his throne. Literally, physically, right here, right now. I think they must have thought it was all the same event. Jesus responds, and he talks, I think, about both. The destruction of the temple, which the temple actually was destroyed in 70 AD. I know when you start bringing in historical dates, people's eyes start glazing over, but all that to say, the temple actually did get destroyed within the lifetime of these disciples. But a lot of what he describes in here has not yet happened, and Jesus has not yet set up his reign so he responds and talks about both. I have to think the disciples just did not understand what, everything he was saying. And I have to think that we most likely are not going to fully understand everything that he's saying here. Whenever the Bible talks about the future to God's people, God's people inevitably do not fully understand it. If you think about ancient Israel with all the prophecies of the coming Messiah, they had bits and pieces that they understood, you know, which what was revealed to them as best they could 
understand it, but they didn't fully grasp the full glory of what God was going to do in bringing Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to them. And then the disciples themselves, they had Jesus right beside them telling them things about the future. He told them, I'm going to be killed and raised from the dead. And they still didn't understand it even up to this point. God's people never really understand what God's talking about when he's talking about the future until it happens. And then they look back and say, oh, that's perfect. That's so much more perfect than what I thought was going to happen. And so anytime we read the scripture about the future, we need to remember the past, that God's people are notorious for not fully understanding what God's talking about until it comes to pass. So we're going to read this chapter. We're not going to be dogmatic in our interpretation of it. We're going to understand what we can. We're going to be grateful for what's revealed to us here, but we're going to be humble about it. Now, it may be that he's talking about the temple destroyed and his return to be king as sort of bookends. The temple's destruction is the beginning of a process that will culminate when he returns. It may be that he sort of alternates between the two. There's some linguistic things in here that make that possibly make sense. He's talking about the temple, then he's talking about his return, and the temple, then his return, and he alternates. It may be that they're merged together. That as he talks about one, he's also in a mysterious way talking about the other at the same time. It may be that the destruction of the temple is sort of a pattern that will echo in and illuminate what's going to happen when he returns. And maybe something else altogether. I'll give you my commentaries and you can see all the different possibilities. But for us right now, let's just read it. And I'm going to point out five signs when all these things are going to be accomplished. I'm going to use the disciples' words. All these things are going to be accomplished or fulfilled or completed. So we're just going to read it and we'll make some observations about it, and then I'm going to give you just one big idea takeaway from it all, rather than trying to untangle all these knots. Deal? Sound good? Everybody on board? Okay, here we go. So Jesus responds to their question, tell me when, tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? He responds, and in this teaching, there are, depending on how you arrange it, there are five signs that these things are going to be accomplished. And the first he mentions is imposters. Imposters. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. Now this has happened throughout church history. Many have come in the name of Jesus and led people astray, many false teachers. Many actually have come claiming to be Jesus and led many astray. It happened in the past, it still goes on, and it'll happen in the future. Jesus' concern here isn't to nail down a precise timeline based on this, but to say, don't be led astray. This is going to be a factor for my followers. They'll be imposters. Don't be led astray by them. The second sign he mentions, war and natural disasters. Verses 7 and 8. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. 
For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Nations will rise against nations. Nature will rise against nature. He says, this is going to happen. You're going to hear about it. But don't think that this is the end. The end is not yet. These things have to happen. These are inevitable things. And he says, they're the beginning of the birth pains. They're like contractions to an expectant mother. Again, his concern here isn't to lay out a precise timeline so we can guess dates. His emphasis is, don't be alarmed by these things. It's going to happen. The third sign, persecution. Beginning at verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will rise up, and brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Here is an intense picture of persecution. So when is he talking? Is he talking about preceding the temple's destruction in 70 AD? Is he talking about a future date? Is he talking about right before he returns? Well, really, the answer may just be yes, because they experienced persecution similar to this in the book of Acts. They were pulled before councils and synagogues, and that was their platform to proclaim the gospel to them. But persecution continues on today and will. We, we should not be surprised at it when it does continue on. Again, his priority doesn't seem to be the timeline. It seems to be be on guard. And when this comes up, don't be anxious. The Holy Spirit will guide you. The fourth sign. This is absolutely the most mysterious to me of all the signs that he mentions. Desolation and tribulation is what I'll call it. Verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, and then there's this parenthesis, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. 
what? What is, he, what is going on? Now, this definitely seems to refer to prophecy from the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. You might want to just write that down. You can go and read it later. There's a prophecy in the book of Daniel that sounds very much like this. Many people think that that prophecy was already fulfilled, though. I'm going to give you another date, but around 160 B.C. Because a Roman leader did desecrate the temple, set up an altar to Zeus and sacrificed a pig in the temple, and that was absolutely an abomination, a a hated, detestable thing before God. But a lot of what was in Daniel wasn't fulfilled in what happened in 167 B.C. So it's almost like it's still... It doesn't seem to be everything. Seems to still be in the future based on what Jesus is saying. Now, right now where the temple stood stands uh, Islamic religious site right now. And some people argue that that's the abomination that causes desolation. But yet that doesn't still seem to fully fulfill everything Jesus is talking about here. It's so mysterious. In Revelation, there's scripture that makes us think it is still yet in the future. And it has to do with the Antichrist. And actions he's going to take. But to me, it's just still so mysterious. I, I want to be able to say it means this, and it means this, and it means this. Case closed. I can't. I am not there yet in my understanding. I can say that he is concerned here that his disciples be on guard. And that's clear enough to me. And when, when it all is fulfilled, we'll look back and we'll say that makes perfect sense. And maybe you understand it fully. I'm sorry, your pastor does not. So we'll take it as we, as we have it for now. We'll receive it as it is in the Bible. We trust the Holy Spirit to guide us to understand it. And we'll move forward to the next sign that he mentions, the fifth thing. I'll just call it cosmic chaos. Verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, And the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now, I do do believe we've not experienced this yet. Though the sun was darkened while Jesus was on the cross, again, part of this seem to take place, but not all of this. Now, I have to think whenever I read passages like this that there is probably so much that we don't understand about the way time works in God's creation from his perspective. You know how Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am? I think that the, how this all works and how time works in relation to all this will one day make sense to us, but it makes perfect sense to God. And so what do we take away from this right now? Well, there's tons of things that we can pull from here and take away from this. I was going to preach this in four sermons, but I decided that right now in in this season of our church, and for me, I'm just going to preach it in one sermon because I'm afraid to get too detailed with it. I'm just afraid I don't understand it well enough. There's much more in here than what I'm about to give you, but I will give you this. I think there is one ultimate overarching takeaway that he meant for his disciples then and for his disciples now, you and me. And that's what he outlines in verses 28 through the end of the chapter, verse 37. Let's read it and let's land where Jesus lands 
in this teaching and see if you can pick out what it is. The overarching arching, arching takeaway. Verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as this branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, stay awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So this is where Jesus lands in this teaching. Did you, did you see the overarching idea? All through this chapter, as he's laying out some of these signs and revealing some of these things, he's instructing his disciples how they ought to act in all of this. He said, see to it that you're not led astray. Don't be alarmed. Be on guard. Don't be anxious. Be on guard. Be on guard. Keep awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. Those are the the 10 instructions that he gives. I think that gives us a sense of what we can take away confidently. We may not be confident in our understanding of what's going to happen, but we can be confident in how we ought to live in the meantime. This gets back to that idea of anticipation wakefulness and waiting, knowing that Jesus is going to come back. We are like servants waiting for our master's return. We've been given work to do. We've been given work to do. And it will be tempting to turn away from that work and get complacent in this world as if he's never going to come back. But he is going to come back. And so we must stay awake. He has instructed us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He has instructed us to love our neighbor as ourself. He's instructed us to make disciples of all nations. He's instructed us to obey the risen Savior and Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit in increasing gospel influence together. So, let's, when we watch the news, or we listen to the news in our car, or read it on our phone, and we see disturbing headlines, let's let that prompt us to this kind of anticipation. Let's let that nudge us and wake us back up spiritually. Let's let wars and rumors of wars prompt us to make sure we're not led astray from Christ. Let's let natural disasters prompt us to trust more deeply in Christ and not be alarmed. Let's let persecution prompt us to be on guard. Let's let tribulation prompt us to keep awake. Let's let Christmas prompt us to this kind of anticipation. Let's not be lulled to spiritual sleep by the pleasures of this world so that even while celebrating Christmas, we forget Christ. 
Let's use this season as a reminder of Jesus' return. And let's let communion right now prompt this kind of anticipation in us. Because Jesus said when he gave instructions about this, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, I am grateful that you've revealed these things to us. I admit there's so much I don't understand, so many questions that I have. But I trust you, and I pray that you would help us to trust you more deeply. And most importantly, would you help us to stay awake? Help us not to be led astray. Help us not to be alarmed by things we see going on in the world. Help us to be on guard. Help us not to be anxious Because you will, by your Holy Spirit, empower us to do the things you call us to do. Help us to keep awake and stay awake. In Jesus' name, amen.